Hey everybody, welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. My name is Jake Wiskirchen. Thank you for downloading us once more, and thank you for your continued loyalty. I've had a couple of disruptions lately. We've we've liked to have been really regular with our weekly installments, but uh, scheduling being that it what it is, and life uh, throwing us the curveballs that it does, and uh, technical difficulties being what they are, we've we've missed a couple weeks here and there. And so, I'm glad to be back and talking to you guys. And this is Domestic Violence Awareness Month in America. October serves as that month uh, during which we we bring attention and uh, hopefully more resources and donations to domestic violence resource centers all across the country and local communities as well as nationally. So today, uh, even though we're a week into the month already, we're going to kick off our series of conversations about DV with John Malcolm from Safe Embrace. That's our local, or at least local to the Northern Nevada area, our local sexual and domestic violence Resource Center and Shelter. Um, they don't particularly like the word shelter because it, it, it sounds a little dingy and run down like it's some clapboard structure thrown together with just corrugated tin or something, but it's not. It's actually a really, really nice house. I've been there. It's very large, many bedrooms. Uh, there's a nice backyard and uh, there's, there's a kennel for the pets. Uh, so if you're, if you're leaving an abusive relationship, you can bring your pets with you. Uh, children can come, and um, as of very recently, uh, it's co-ed, so uh, males and females can find respite and recovery within the Safe Embrace Safe House. So that's really cool. It's innovative. We like partnering with them. We we at Zephyr Wellness provide the safe the uh, the clinical services to Safe Embrace, meaning we provide counseling uh, both on an outpatient basis as well as in the uh, in the Safe House itself. Um, it's really wonderful. I love the arrangement that we have. We do groups and individual, uh, we serve the transitional living clients who are, you know, transitioning out of the safe house and into their own, uh, living situations. It's, it's just really just absolutely wonderful. It's a blessing to be a part of. So, um, I'm very proud of our partnership there. So as always, the podcast is brought to you by Zephyr Wellness. Go to zephyrwellness.org to find out more about us. And it's also brought to you by Audible. Audible is an Amazon uh, derivative and through audible if you're not familiar you can download uh, just a ton of different audio content uh, audio books is where people's minds usually go but beyond books there's all sorts of new original content news entertainment of all kinds comedy and um, it's unmatched uh, probably because it is powered by amazon which is a global company with ex- expansive reach um, if you want to try out Audible and see if it's a fit for you, you can do a free 30-day trial, and you can do it using our code, and we have a special URL. It's audibletrial.com slash nogginnotes. You can go there, uh, download your free 30-day trial, and you get, along with that free 30-day trial, a free audiobook. So you can download something, and even if you cancel the trial, uh, you get to keep the audiobook, which is pretty sweet. I've done it. I've signed up. Um, there's a there's a screening tool that you can use that'll uh, screen for your preferences, and it, the, then the uh, the site itself will guide you toward things that it thinks that you'll enjoy. And it worked really well for me. It's only a few simple questions. It's like five questions I want to say. But uh, audibletrial.com/slash/nogginnotes get access to this expansive library of audio content, and you can listen to it wherever you go in your car, uh, around the house while you're doing chores, in the gym, walking around the neighborhood, mowing the lawn. Uh, all things that I've done, go to audibletrial.com slash nogginotes. Get your free 30-day trial. Uh, no commitment whatsoever. Cancel whenever you want, but hopefully you don't cancel. Hopefully you stay there and uh, benefits you, feeds your brain, benefits us, benefits Audible, obviously, and uh, 
the whole world goes around in peace. So this is my interview with John Malcolm from Safe Embrace. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day. Oh, we're back with John Malcolm from Safe Embrace. Hi, John. Hey, how are you doing? I'm really doing well, actually. Um, Zephyr, uh, <laughs> Zephyr's rocking. We're busier than we can keep up with, and uh, I'm healthy. My family's good. Um, things are things are awesome. How are you? I'm doing good, especially after the uh, game last night because you're a Giants fan, right? I am a Giants fan, yep. and I love watching the Dodgers lose. Um, I don't I don't necessarily begrudge any particular players because I, I recognize that they're human beings also. And I, I think some of the stuff that's going around on social media attacking like Clayton Kershaw specifically is really disgusting. Um, I mean, as funny as it might be because we poke fun at like celebrities and professional right. athletes and that kind of thing. And, you know, we like to mock their downfalls if we're on the other team or whatever. I, I think it's – I don't think it helps the world go around, you know. And um, – so as much as I like watching my rival uh, lose, I don't like watching the the political. I'm, I'm sorry, the uh, the personal, uh, I guess, collateral damage that that occurs along the way. Because um, can you imagine if we took that into any other element where, like, uh, a teacher at a school that was your crosstown rival? Um, you know, found out that her students failed, and like all of a sudden we memed the teacher and mocked her for like doing her job poorly. That would that would that's not okay. Um, but for some reason, we believe that we can be we're exempt from being human beings and being kind to each other just because these people are on TV. And um, so I I don't know. I have a I have a pretty strong opinion about that. And yeah, this is probably isn't the show for it because we're talking about domestic violence awareness no, month. But it's but, kind of. But it's good, important. It's a good, um, I guess, almost like a segue from it because you kind of see that with our um, from our shelter that we'll talk about more with our survivors and stuff like that. Go, go on with that. So, so you're from Safe Embrace. You've been on the show before. We talked about something that you did before, which was um, called Coaching Men and, uh, <laughs> Coaching Boys into Men. Uh, not Men into Boys, be the other direction. But um, you're not doing that anymore. That was a grant-funded project. It was it was very successful. It had to do with high school sports and teaching um, c- cultural awareness for uh, basically being, being men, uh, but in adolescence and we don't need to rehash that because there's a whole show on it and you can go back and listen to that if you're the listening audience, but now you're in a, in a different role. And, um, I want to hear about what safe embrace does for people who may not be familiar. And I also want to know about this new role is that you've taken on. Yeah. So safe embrace is a nonprofit here, local, um, located in Sparks, Nevada that works with victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking. Um, so we, we provide numerous different kinds of services um, for our survivors. We provide shelter, emergency shelter, transitional housing, rapid rehousing, uh, legal advocacy, support groups, uh, public trainings, volunteer opportunities, and also um, free counseling as well. This is this is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but you guys also do sexual and domestic violence under one roof. Explain the, I guess, the nuance difference between the two, and um, you know what the what the different programs are for that. Yeah, so what we've seen, um, like I said, yes, uh, it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Uh, we are a triple threat kind of uh, agency working with victims of sexual violence and human trafficking. What we've come to find is advocates that are trained just in. Uh, the dynamics of domestic violence they don't necessarily provide we're not providing the best services for our survivors that have been in human trafficking and sexual violence so we've been able to um, tailor our training to have advocates that work just um, with those victims of human trafficking and sexual violence to provide the best um, services possible 
So I guess if we're going to split hairs on this, uh, domestic violence occurs typically in a romantic relationship and or under the roof uh, of a shared living space. And sexual violence can occur anywhere. I mean, that's a, that's your you know party, party sexual assaults, uh, date rapes. And then, of course, trafficking is its own thing. Um, so they are three different um, beasts. But you can certainly have someone trafficked into a relationship and then be abused. Uh, so you can have somebody who's, who's representing all three, um, I guess, a, a, a I don't know what you call them, uh, a, afflictions, mm-hmm. um, but not, they don't necessarily always walk together if that's, if that's accurate. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, what you said, yeah, it's completely accurate. Um, so we've been able to, um, have our advocates um, be able to train and work with those different kind of populations because we've seen that, especially with trafficking. Uh, majority of the people that we have countered uh, that have been trafficked know they're traffickers. They're not someone that kind of like a uh, Liam Neeson type kind of taking kind of movie, mm-hmm. uh, which is which happens 100%, but majority of the time it's people that they know. So we what, what the audience doesn't know is we actually recorded this uh, same podcast or we tried to about a week ago and uh, I didn't turn the microphone on <laughs> and, and so it, it picked up only from the computer mic which ended up uh, resulting in something that sounded a little bit like we were being eavesdropped on from across the room and so we're here re-recording it. Um, I want to spend a little time in that trafficking space because when you and Jessica and Jessica's not with us she's the executive director of Safe Embrace but um, she couldn't join us this time. When you guys were talking about this trafficking thing, I was blown away. I learned a ton in just the very short time that we talked. Um, I didn't realize, first of all, how prevalent it was and then how, I guess, easy it is. Uh, and you just touched on it now where, where most trafficking occurs with people you know. Dive into that a little bit, and then we'll come back to the to the DV stuff and your, and your job now. Yeah, so with the trafficking, you know, we talked about people that you know. For example, um, we see it with immigration. You know, I can help you get across the border papers, things like that, job guaranteed. And that's where we see a lot of labor trafficking right now, especially in rural Nevada that we talked about last time. For example, we've taken victims from as small as cities as Winnemucca. Um, you know, just things like that. And then the sex trafficking and obviously having I-80 here, um, this highway that comes across our city is connected to two uh, major ports, right? So there's trafficking that's coming around I-80 all the time. And this is a big hotbed for um, traffickers to stop and um, make profit. And you, you talk about labor trafficking. You're talking about somebody who's enticed with a job to go somewhere. It doesn't have to be internationally. It can be domestically. Um, what kind of jobs are we talking here that would uh, get somebody to jump in with a, a potential stranger and then be basically like indentured servitude? So, for example, um, if you look at our youth homeless population right now, 57% of our youth homeless are being trafficked, Okay, whether it's sexual or um, labor. Uh, for example, there's, you know, these kids who are just looking to find and make a dollar. Um, have someone like, hey, uh, I can have you come on my ranch. I'll pay you straight cash, a couple hundred bucks, uh, a couple days a week. What do you think? Oh, yeah, that'll be awesome. And then they end up staying. They don't get the money. They end up just working for this person day in, day out kind of thing. So that's where we've seen, for example, when it comes to labor trafficking. Now, if I'm going to play devil's advocate here and just be um, the contrarian, I would say something like, well, why doesn't the child just leave? And 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 to be to be honest, we're, when you say youth, we're talking like 18 to 24 Correct. youth, right? Not So the, technically they're adults uh, by legal standing. Typically they're not uh, underage uh, minor children, but um, sometimes that happens as well. And people will go, how, how could parents lose track of their children? Well, these people are in chaos and uh, maybe parents aren't around. Maybe they're 
uh, wards of the state, or maybe they never even got into foster care. But to that to that point about how they arrive there, um, we say, well, why don't they just leave? I mean, they got there on a train or a bus or whatever. Why can't they just walk off and you know realize they're not getting paid? Um, is there violence involved, or what? What's the threat that's keeping them there working, uh, or maybe even uh, performing sexual favors or whatever? that doesn't allow them to leave. Right. So uh, that's a great question because we can kind of segue that uh, when we talk about domestic violence, right? These these traffickers, abusers, however you want to um, label them as, have one thing in common, and it's uh, power and control, right? And that power and control is used in so many different ways, and especially as traffickers, whether it's direct violence, where it's, the, you know, the black guys, the broken arms, the beatings, the physical abuse that we all see, um, but the indirect violence. Maybe it's the threatening of... Uh, you know, will threaten your family. Maybe it's the financial abuse. Maybe it's the psychological abuse. Um, so there's so many different forms of power and control that these traffickers or abusers use um, in order uh, to get what they want, right? Yeah, and I want to make very clear to the listening audience that if, if you're raised in a healthy environment and you've never been subject to some of these uh, abuses, it's really hard to conceptualize psychological manipulation to the point that a person, um, quote-unquote, can't leave. Uh, it's that they believe they can't leave for some sort of psychological leverage. And they never had the opportunity to, to grow up in, a, in an environment where they learned self-esteem, self-efficacy, um, distress tolerance, resilience. And so if you can imagine being raised in a completely chaotic environment and you only know what you're told by people who have authority and power over you, it's really easy to be sucked into manipulative situations and then stay there. Uh, based on promises that will never be delivered or um, threats that may may also never be delivered, but you don't know that because you've never known anything different. So that leads into how do people stay in you know domestically violent relationships, which is here. This is what we're talking about, and this this may be a little bit of a heavy podcast. I mean, it's a heavy month. We're trying to bring awareness to this stuff so that ideally. You know, people throw their money and resources at at solving it, and it's not going to come from the government or uh, you know any other top down entity. It's going to come from grassroots community efforts. So, uh, a shout out to Safe Embrace if you want to donate. You know, safeembrace.org is where you do that. But back on point, um, talk a little bit about what you see as far as people in domestically violent relationships, uh, abusive relationships, and struggling to leave. So what we see is, you know, these survivors get into the cycle, uh, the cycle of abuse. On average, it takes about seven times for someone who's been abused to leave an abusive relationship, right? So how the cycle works out that we've seen, um, we see the calm before the storm. We see the tension build up. We see the act, whether it's direct violence or indirect violence. And then we see the honeymoon phase, right? So we see the apologies. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen again. Um, I'm going to be better from it. We're going to learn from this. And you just keep generally just you just get stuck and stuck and stuck and you kind of get blinded because you're put in this almost this you know this fight or flight state right you're just trying to survive um to the next day and we see that a lot of our survivors and unfortunately there's these these abusers use so much power and control um they make these these survivors um dependent on everything so where they get where they may have the opportunity to leave they go back because they 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 have no Unfortunately, no self-value, no self-worth, no empowerment, um, and, and no truly um, belief in their self, which is really, really hard to see, especially when, um, when you work with survivors and, and you try your best to you know, empower them, but they just can't, just can't move on to that next level to get over it. And I know clinically speaking from the experience I've had, um, people who find themselves in that situation typically never had any um, 
any self-efficacy built into them over time from parents. And so they just go into one relationship after another that uh, replicates that, um, you know, thumb, thumb down on the, on the top of the head kind of um, power differential. Um, tell me about some of the, like the reasons, uh, you can't see the air quotes, but um, the, the reasons that people give that really to our ears sound like excuses, but they're, they're legitimate reasons in the, in the mind of the, the person giving them for going back or for staying um, and, and they say, I'm just going to stop there. Give me some of those reasons that you hear about why people return. Right. Um, a lot of it, um, and I know you can add on to it cause you've talked about it before. It's just the basic needs, whether it's financially, whether it's a roof over your head, whether it's providing food, whether it's providing some, unfortunately they see it as some form of stability, right? Without them in their lives, they did say, hey, you know, if I have to take this abuse from this person, in order to keep a roof over my head, keep my kids closed, keep them fed, you know, have, you know, and have money to, you know, survive, um, then that's what I'm going to do. So that's where, where we see a lot of it is that, that financial abuse and those basic needs. And kids and pets are a huge leverage tool also. Oh, absolutely. And especially um, we've seen a lot is stepchildren, mm. right? A lot of abusers use stepchildren as leverage. And that's one question that we ask when we do our danger assessment is do you have – children that aren't the abusers because abusers are more likely to abuse their stepchildren than their biological children so the idea then is that i need to stick around to protect my children absolutely or i need to stick around to protect my pet absolutely and i can't possibly leave because if i do then he's gonna kill the dog or and i say he because i'm, I'm gender biased here because the statistics skew that way um but um you know it's a it's a woman trying to leave a relationship he's gonna kill the dog he's gonna beat my kids he's gonna come after me um, and then the financial stuff is that the, a lot of times these, these victims, uh, until they become survivors, they, they get out and they, you know, they, they survive and they can look back. They will, uh, have a narrative that says that they, they're not capable of finding work or they're not, they don't know how to live on their own, or they don't believe that there's uh, a roof available for them, or, um, maybe they don't believe that they're worthy, right? How much of that do you, do you hear and see? Um, uh, I, I would have to say, I would see it. Especially in our support groups, when I come in and, you know, and I help cover our support groups, I see them all the time. You know, they go back to their abusers majority of the time just because they have that, it's just that empowerment's just not there. That, you know, that, that, that sense of belief that they can um, live a better life without that abuser, it, it's just not there in their mindset. And it's really, it's really heartbreaking to see, uh, especially when you try your best to, you know, talk and just lay out the options for them. And obviously at the end of the day, uh, it's their decision. You know, you can't lead a horse to water and make them drink it. Um, well, what we've been seeing is that uh, it's really difficult uh, to, you know, to kind of get these survivors out of these relationships. And and if there's a, a wistfulness or a sadness that, that the listening audience is detecting in our uh, vocal tone, it's because it is sad. It's it's frustrating. Um, but one thing that we're not doing is we're not judging the people. Um, there's, there's absolutely legitimate longstanding history that backfills these stories that says we totally get why you would go back. Uh, from, from that perspective, it makes sense that you would return over and over until you get some different perspective. And I think that's what, uh, a service agency like yours does like safe embrace is that it provides perspective because a lot of times isolation is the tool that's used to, to keep victims in the cycle um until they can get out and survive away from it right so how does 
how does isolation come about and what are the, some of the, the tools? Because we want to talk about red flags here in a second. Right. How do you, what do you look for? So when it comes to the isolation, you know, one thing that we see a lot with our survivors when they call, you know, we try to find shelter. You know, do you have anyone you can stay with in town? Do you have friends? Do you have family? And they're like, I got nobody. Everybody, I've left all my friends. I've left all my family for this, for this person, right? So when it comes to isolation, even this comes from moving to a different town. Um, from even from like a geographical standpoint, um, these survivors get isolated from everything they're put on their own island um, with their abuser. We're talking about power and control as the the mechanism that uh, the tool the the need that gets fulfilled by the the by the abuser upon the abused. So a big part of power and control is telling people who they can and cannot associate with, um, controlling finances. Uh, right down to you may or may not eat the food out of the fridge, right? So, um, there's some very insidious ways of manipulating people's behaviors based on uh, threat of removal of the financial support or, uh, you know, a psychological manipulation like nobody will ever love you again. I'm the only one in your life who will ever love you. Look how disgusting you are. You're not worthy uh, up to physical abuse of like, you know, don't don't disobey me or you're going to get a beating again or I'll destroy your stuff or, you know, threaten loved ones, that kind of thing. So all this works toward isolation. So if you're, if you're in the listening audience and you're going, well, how I can't ever, you know, put myself in a position where my significant other would isolate me from my friends and family. That's, that's how it starts. It starts little, it doesn't start uh, big. And again, think about if the, if you're raised in an environment where you never were given um, healthy support and love and affection and uh, taught those things, then that's all you know. And it becomes, a, I don't know if people are familiar with the frog in the pot uh, analogy, but if you if you stick a frog in some water and put it on the stove and slowly turn up the heat, eventually the frog dies because it doesn't know any better. It just starts to adapt to its environment until it just becomes unsustainable. But if you take a frog and you stick it in some hot water, the frog's going to jump out because it knows that it's it's such a stark difference from what it mm. what it is supposed to be living in so for those of us who are living in a fairly healthy stable environment and somebody came to us and was like hey you're not allowed to hang out with your best friend anymore we'd be like what no <laughs> I'm, I'm choosing them over you but for people who have never known any different the environment just starts to to warm so to speak to the point that they just you know die from the inside out talk about some of the red flags though so maybe some people are listening to this and they're and they're like wow i think that might be me but i'm not really sure what what are some identifiers i mean you call them red flags what what are some things to look for in one's own personal life yeah so what we've seen um we have a danger assessment that we ask our survivors when they call in on our crisis line and we have certain questions and it kind of gives us a um a mathematical formula of how severe you are and it kind of gives us a ranking scale uh, so the questions that we that we ask is, you know, if there's a gun present in the home. Now I understand we're in the United States and Second Amendment and all that, but when a gun's present in the home, uh, your chances of getting murdered go up by 300. Um, percent Has he has the abuser ever threatened you with a lethal weapon? Has he constantly or violently je- jealous? Uh, murder suicide's a big one. Have you ever thought of suicide? Has they ever thought? Have the abuser ever thought of suicide? Uh, does the abuser ever try to strangle you? Has the abuser ever tried to? Uh, beat you while you were pregnant? Um, has the abuser ever threatened the kids? Has the abuser had any in, in interactions with law enforcement in the past six months? Have you tried to leave in the past six months? So those questions kind of give us a better idea of uh, what's going on as a, from an advocate standpoint. But if you're asking yes to a lot of these questions, especially if you're listening right now, those are red flags that you should be um, 
trying to find an, uh, an alternative to that relationship. And those sound really heavy. What are some lower level ones that we may not notice? Uh, stuff like um, not gaining access to the debit card and that kind of thing, and taking the keys to the car. So the ones that we've seen, um, for example, can be um, you know financial abuse is why don't I have access to your bank account? Um, even just phone use, who are you on the phone with? Who are you texting? Right? Who are you calling? Right? Things like that. Um, you know, for example, close. You know, for example, I've seen relationships where uh, someone, you know, they didn't light their shades, their, their sunglasses, and like, I don't like those, we're throwing them away. And then you have to go buy your own sunglasses. Right? Wow. Um, what else? There's, you know, there are tons of examples I can get. The ones that are just like, why, why is this such a big deal? Or, you know, the biggest one that we've seen a lot is um, employment, right? Where, for example, um, in my previous uh, position doing behavioral health, you know, the wife went and got the husband fired from his job so he can be home more with the kids. But then how do you provide food when you're not working either? What do you mean got him fired? How does that work? So she went to the work and was like, hey, you should um, drug test this guy. Yeah. You couldn't see that, but my eyebrows went up. So presuming that she knows that he does drugs or whatever, um, she went to the boss and asked them to drug test her husband. Mm-hmm. So what's the manipulation there? She wants him home more with the kids just so because? That and more just power control. Like, I control everything you do. Mm. You know, if you ask to jump, you ask how high kind of thing, right? Where we see that power and control with um, our survivors. Where do people get the need for power and control other than just, we'll just say that they're mean people and they, you know, they're hollow on the inside and they're just insecure. Um, Are you seeing things like um, uh, dependency, uh, enmeshment, you know, like I, I, I saved you from your drinking uh, and you'd never be the same without me. So therefore you must do all that I obey. I mean, like how much of that versus just straight up being mean? Mm -hmm. I, you know, from what I've seen, is it's a learned behavior that's become a generational cycle, right? Majority of our survivors, when we talk about this, um, uh, they learn it from their their parents growing up. You know, they're, they, you know our survivors, you know, talk about you know being being molested when they were children. Uh, my abuser was also abused as a child and had a, a horrible uh, a horrible environment to grow up in, right? So I, you know, I think it, you know, it's a learned behavior. Right. And that's where I come in from outreach and prevention education, trying to prevent that next generation from coming up from being there, either a victim or an abuser. Uh, but what I've been seeing uh, in our line of work is seeing that it's it's a lot of it's just a generational cycle and, it, and it's just been really bad parenting. So if we shift gears a little bit, you uh, do outreach, prevention, education. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the job that you're doing now. But in in the past job, you your job was to go and teach adolescents and youth um, what healthy relationships look like. And if the listening audience is you know interested in helping out in this cause, and you know maybe you don't want to dig into your wallet and just write a check, uh, there's a way to volunteer, and it's to do what you did, right? Which is to be a, a healthy presence in people's lives. You don't have to have any special magical tools. I mean, it certainly helps to have some training, but. Talk a little bit about these conversations that you had with the kids on the sports teams and um, how that maybe awakened some people and opened some eyes. Yeah, absolutely. So my original position, like we talked about earlier, was coaching boys and men, which was working and training um, coaches to talk about their player to their players about domestic violence because coaches have a powerful role 
right? That rapport, that mentorship, that leadership kind of thing. Uh, when we've able to train, um, to tailor it as well, where I've been go- going in and doing, you know, kind of empowering um, presentations and group trainings on domestic violence and sexual assault and by- bystander intervention and all that stuff. And the one saying that I always kind of, uh, well, really there's two that uh, I kind of live off of when it comes to my trainings is I've kind of tailored the one where, you know, I use a lot of my student athletes is it takes no talent to hustle. And it takes no, it takes no talent to be a good person. You know, you don't have to be the best looking guy, the smartest or whatever. It doesn't take no talent to have a good heart. And another one uh, is a really good quote um, from a, you know, a good U.S. Navy SEAL book. It's just not what you preach is what you tolerate. All right. So when it comes to our presentations, I can talk, talk myself to boot to death about how we can, you know, stop this and all that. But how do we tolerate it? How do we not tolerate this as a community? Right. Giving our youth the tools to not tolerate this kind of behavior. That's really uh, important, I think, as it plays into bystander intervention, because people who don't understand that concept, um, basically, if you're if you're watching something occur and you know that it's wrong and you don't do anything, you're you're basically doing what we call in, in the psychological world diffusion of responsibility, meaning you're handing it off to to somebody else. And this happens a lot in crowds where a crowd may may watch something occur that's horrific and everybody in the crowd thinks that somebody else in the crowd is going to do something and then as a consequence nobody does anything and the horrific event transpires so being a bystander and learning how to intervene speaks to that level of intolerance we're not going to tolerate watching horrific events unfold in front of us if we can do something even if that's something you know we're not asking people to jump in front of a knife fight but you can absolutely get on the phone and call the police instead of filming it with your cell phone you know, understanding what you aren't going to tolerate. And then also in recognition, I guess the, the other side of that coin is noticing what society does tolerate and deciding to, that you're not going to be a part of that. Um, speak a little bit of, to, to that and, and how that's moving into the new realm and the new job that you have. Cause a lot of that is, you know, what, what are you tolerating and, mm-hmm. and then increasing your alertness and your sensitivities to the things that aren't acceptable. Right. So, now, kind of, you know, I've been in this position, believe it or not, I'm going in year two, or excuse me, year three already. I've already been at Safe Embrace for that's crazy two years, right? I remember, you know, just even talking to you when I first got my position here. Um, now, you know, since we've kind of established a very good individual relationship um, with our community by doing group works and presentations, we have to step it up by from doing a community-based change. So now what we're working on is uh, implementing policy and procedures uh, with bartenders, nightlife owners, you know, adult entertainment, things like that on uh, how to prevent domestic violence in the workplace and sexual violence and sexual harassment. Because it goes back to saying it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate, right? So that's great. But how do we make this functional now? You know, how do we put this to, you know, we have it on paper now, how do we put it in action? And that's where now we get to go in and almost be kind of a, where I'm really excited for, especially as, um, you know, someone who loves to, you know, I think Nevada has a very uh, energetic nightlife uh, experience and culture that is, I think, is really important to, um, you know, keep going, especially because that's what I think that's what makes Nevada, Nevada. And being able to address an issue that's, you know, extremely prevalent here. And unfortunately, we're the best at the worst at it. You know, we've been in the top, you know, 15 years for husbands murdering former wives. And, you know, a lot of his stuff has, um, you know, transpired you know beginning sometimes in bars and i think being able to prevent that um, will overall um, help our community become a better place 
So talking about how you put this into practice, what does it look like when you have these conversations with the, the, the tavern owners, if you will, of the various stripes? Because we're not judging the, the content of what they're doing. We're not, we're not saying that, you know, bars need to go out of business and stop selling alcohol. We don't say that adult entertainment needs to stop. Um, that's the simple matter of business. That's, that's another, you know, thing that other people can take up if they have a, a bellyache about it. What we're trying to do is create the best culture within those establishments as long as they're around. So what does it look like, practically speaking? How can uh, people who listen to this maybe take something away and Im- implement it in their own life? Right. So what we've been doing, you know, is for one, how to recognize red flags, especially in a bar setting, you know, what is domestic violence? What is sexual violence? You know, how to look for it um, with your customers that come in. But I think the one where, you know, we're getting really excited of doing is training these bartenders on how to handle disclosures, right? So for example, it's kind of like that, almost that cheers kind of mindset where, you know, your bartender by your first name and things like that. And how's it going? And, you know, what's, how are things going like that? And, you know, when someone self-discloses, you know, I've been experiencing domestic violence, you know, I've just been sexually assaulted. How does that bartender handle that? That's awesome because they're not what we would call mandated reporters. And mandated reporters, just so everybody's – I like to educate on this podcast. Um, If you're mandated by law to report um, instances of – and typically it's protected populations and vulnerable populations like children or the elderly or the handicapped, um, if you hear about abuse, neglect – uh, violence or isolation, you're required by law to report those things. Now, however, adults, fully functioning adults who don't have a disability and aren't children, are no, they don't fall under the mandated reporter law. So even in a clinical setting like here at Zephyr, if somebody tells me, hey, I'm, I'm being beat up every night at home, but you know, you're 26 years old, I can't do anything. I'm not allowed to break your confidentiality. The law doesn't compel me to. All I can do is help motivate you to you know, leave the situation. Um, so this is a really cool topic and I didn't know you were doing this, but you're basically going to empower bartenders to notice these things and then take some kind of action. And it's not probably going to be picking up the phone and <laughs> calling the cops on their spouse or whatever, but what does it look like? So what, it, what we're hoping is, you know, having these bartenders understand the right resources, like who the, you know, what resources can provide what, and then especially in the workplace, addressing workplace violence, right? You know, hospitality is one of the top five industries top five industries for uh sexual violence right and domestic violence you know almost what are the others um business is huge oh right the workplace yeah workplace business is huge and actually a really big one is uh, education really yeah wow teachers and uh, a lot of it is at the university level with, oh okay with professors hmm you know, fascinating i'm failing a class well we can probably figure out a way or two to fix that grade that we, we've seen that a lot disgusting okay yeah huh wow so you're you're teaching them how to figure this out and then get them to the proper resource and have a conversation that's not weird. I'm guessing. So. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because that can kind of be a shell shock for you know for someone that's not trained. You know, no one. Uh, hopefully, you know, people go into bartending, but they don't realize that you know sometimes they become the therapist or the counselor, especially uh, after someone has a couple of Moscow's on a Friday night, right? Yeah, um, yeah. They become the counselor or the therapist, and you know sometimes these customers unload a lot. And it's tough for uh, sometimes bar- they're just not equipped for that. They didn't they get into that industry for that kind of line of work, and that's you know that's what they're dealt. Not that I want to add more to your plate, but um, 
estheticians, hairstylists, manicurists also fall into that category. I just mm. uh, discovered that. I don't know if I just discovered it, but it was at least made aware to me, more aware. Are you working with those folks? Too? So we are also doing, um, we have a victim service program coordinator, Diana Ramirez. Uh, she's fantastic. She's actually running our cut it out program. So she's training hairstylists and estheticians and all of them. Uh, when those self disclosures come in, how to handle it, how to talk about it. So they have a stack of Zephyr wellness cards next yes, to them. They do. Okay. Yes. <laughs> it's a shameless uh, self plug there, but seriously, um, if people are, you know, acknowledging this to their, their service industry folks. And I, and I worked service industry for 10 years, including bartending, um, actually it's more than that if you count my DJing years is like almost two decades, but it's, um, it is intimidating to hear somebody share a story about, yeah, you know, he, she doesn't know that I'm out. If she knew that I was out here, man, all hell would break loose. And I gotta, I gotta try to figure out a way to cover up the booze on my breath when I go home. Cause she's going to know I was drinking and it's not about the drinking. It's about, you know, how I'm just not home. And, um, to hear that, it's like the bartender, you know, typically like, hey, yeah, it's life's tough. Uh, women, uh, tough being married. And then you go like polish a glass or something. So your job, I guess, now is to try to help those people recognize that as a red flag and say, hey, man, you know, I don't want to make this like super heavy, but um, have you talked to anybody about this? Because that doesn't sound like a healthy relationship to me. Like that's the kind of in- Yeah, that's conversation the conversations we're trying to generate. That's right? awesome. That's yeah. super cool. And especially, you know, when we go in and talk to um, hospitality, you know, um, especially one, the hospitality industry is geared around for one, especially when it comes to sexual violence, you know, especially with our sexual violence policies and procedures, the bar industry is geared around women and no one's going to go to a bar that's unsafe, hmm. especially for mm-hmm. example, like sexual assault, like, Oh, you know, I've been roofied at that bar. I've you know, sure. I've been assaulted there. Right. No one's going to go to a bar that's safe. You know, the average life of a bar, um, is two years. Hmm. Right. So when we go in and talk about that, you know, this, we're making not only your establishment safer, but we're also you're going to Ensuring see your business life. You're going to see the long term effects with it by making a profit and be able to sustain your business. So there's not a lot of resistance to this when you bring it in. No, it's, when it comes to all this stuff, you know, really, there has never we've never really encountered resistance. You know how we word it and how we sell it. You know, we're not saying you know shame on you if you don't do this, but we weigh out the options where hey, this is the benefits. You know, and that's when we saw. With our coaching to the ben, our coaching boys and the men, and, and our athletes as leaders program with our female athletic teams, every team that did it made playoffs. Hmm. Every team that didn't do it didn't make playoffs. So there's a cultural benefit to to being healthy. Yeah, it generates generates success. Yeah, exactly. And coaches that have been extremely transparent, you know, uh, for example. Uh, we look at Pete Savage, Reno High School. I can count. I don't, we don't think there's enough hands and toes in here to count how many state and zone mm-hmm. championships he has over there. But he's always been the most transparent coach when it comes to our programs. Uh, NFL Academy has reached out to us um, about going in and working with them and training the top 100 athletes in the United States to talk about domestic violence. Um, so the guys that care and know how, how what it takes to be successful as a team and know what it's like to truly be a coach, and that mentorship, you know, buy in for it. And the teams that have said no, um, they're in it for the wrong reasons. And then for bars, you know, the ones that have been successful bars in Midtown and other agencies in Northern Nevada are, you know, obviously buying into it. Well, and I, I appreciate that it's it, it's systemic in its nature because as a systems therapist, I, I, I'm i not into symptom treatment. I'm into problem resolution and making permanent, lasting systemic change. And that's basically what you guys are doing. You're changing cultures. You're not going in there and saying, hey, don't beat your significant other. Ha, ha, ha. All right. Uh, we checked the box. You're saying, like, hey, how can you be a better person? You know, how can you take 
willful action, affirmative steps toward change when you see it happening in other people's lives. Okay, you're not the guy who's prone to violence, but you're around people who might be. So even in the locker room of the clubhouse, and you see somebody who's like, oh, man, I just want to tear the ump's head off. You're like, oh, man, you know, like, I don't know that that's effective. <laughs> like, like you're creating right. a culture where that's just not even tolerated. And if it happens, there's not a... We don't isolate the person and cast them off as an out, outcast or you know, excommunicate them from the community. We actually sit them down and say, hey, what's a better way to deal with that bad call? Mm-hmm. Um, because that, we know that that bleeds out into other areas. If you don't, if you don't attend to underlying anger and frustration, um, it comes out in weird ways. Sometimes it's substance abuse. Sometimes it's violence. And sometimes that violence and substance abuse are, are domestic in nature or they're relational. And all that contributes to greater problems that you know eventually land on your guys' doorstep at Safe Embrace. Um, I love the I love the the cultural component of it. You're you're just changing changing culture. It's great. Yeah, we've been really fortunate. I think our program's been very successful. Um, just doing our numbers from the past six months, um, we did over 100 presentations and did presentations to over 5,000 kids in our community. That's, That's only in the past six months. That's amazing. So we're you know at least over 25,000 plus of you know, at least people we've come in contact with. Do you guys talk to these folks, uh, you know, behind the bars and the, and the nail salons and all that? Do you, do you talk to them about suicide too? Is that it, part of it? You know, we've talked about um, when we come to the training and how we're, you know, designing it now is how to look for red flags, you know, that, that new line of questioning. Do you mm-hmm. have a plan? This and that kind of right. things. You know, um, unfortunately, the assist training is not really mandated a lot. It's kind of more of like a volunteer thing. Mm-hmm. And that's through, you know, a really great agency here is Crisis Support Center of North mm-hmm. Nevada. Um, that, assist, that assist training is, you know, I think is massive for a lot of people to attend. You know, it's and it's crazy how many professions don't get that suicide training and work with people who um, are easily um, could be suicidal. Well, it's hard. It's hard to have that conversation. It's easier just to turn a blind eye to it, right? Mm-hmm. Not my problem. And that's that diffusion of responsibility. Oh, I'm just here doing your hair. Like I'm just here cutting, cutting your beard. I don't, I don't, that's not my realm. That's for, I'm not a mental health professional, but all you have to be to be qualified uh, to have that conversation is be a human. <laughs> if you're a human being, you can validate, you can, you can ask certain questions. And at the end of it, if you're still really uncomfortable um, there, we would hope that people not only wouldn't have shame, but would actually have um, motivation to offer a referral to a trusted provider or entity and make sure that that person that they're, uh, you know, whose hair they're cutting or whose cocktails they're pouring comes back. Um, we, we don't want to hear about, you know, some, some death or some, some violence that occurred that landed somebody in jail or in the hospital or in, in the cemetery, uh, when we ourselves could have done something. And I think that's a really important point to make is that, um, even though they're not man, these aren't mandatory trainings, we should want everybody to volunteer to be at least reasonably not fluent necessarily but we want to have a good working understanding of the language of um violence and self-harm uh, so that we can be good bystander interventionists yeah absolutely when we talk about you know bystander and upstander um you know that's kind of the argument i make you know what's a bystander you know it's a chance spectator what's an upstander someone who stands up for someone's rights mm, you know all mm-hmm. that stuff so which you know looking at those definitions especially when i work with kids which one would you rather be Right. Would you want to be known as a bystander or someone who's an upstander? You know, everyone goes up and be the upstander. Okay, well, that's great. And then we go over the bystander, in fact, and this and that. But I think the biggest thing is just knowing that common, that common language and breaking it down that, you know, the general public can really understand. That's awesome. Hey, um, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming back a second time to, to do this. Um, 
how can people reach out? I mentioned the website, safeembrace.org, but uh, are there different, more effective ways? Are there events coming up? Uh, this will probably post uh, this week, so it's we're recording this on a Thursday. It'll probably post Monday. Um, Domestic Violence Awareness Month is October, but we don't want to just turn off the the spigot of donations just because the month ends. So what are ways that people can make sustainable contributions? Right. So we have our, you know, our website, safeembrace.org. We're on um, all social, we're on social media as well. Um, Facebook and Instagram. If you just type in safe embrace, you know, we're the first ones to pop up. Um, so please choose to follow or like on our social media pages. Um, that's where we're getting all, um, that's where we do all our updates for our um, awareness events. Um, our next awareness event is next Wednesday. So that would be, uh, I believe, October 16th at Bighorn Bar and Tavern Grill. And then also the 23rd at 1864, we're doing um, DJ trivia awareness. So we're asking domestic violence questions to the public. And um, if you get them right, uh, you're able to give away, you know, some soda openers and and some gift cards. And the first one we just had was a big success at uh, Beer Envy. So thank you to Beer Envy for hosting us. It was over 100 plus people that attended. And that's awesome. um, We're able to answer a lot of questions and, you know, we were able to even give a few referrals. So it was uh, overall a successful night. That's really good. Um, and we would be remiss because this podcast is, is national and international. Um, I don't know international resources, but maybe you do. But it, we know there's a national domestic violence uh, hotline. But are there is there a, a hub where people, you know, say living in South Dakota could, you know, donate to their local uh, shelters or agencies? Right. So the, the best way is calling the national domestic hotline and, you know, giving what location you are. And then they will be able to uh, branch you off from state to state. Um, when it comes to that as much as we'd like your money if you're from pennsylvania you know like keep it in your own community yeah <laughs> absolutely um yeah there's tons of nonprofits. there's a lot of uh diamonds in the rough uh when it comes to uh this kind of work um so being able to you know just reaching out to that national hotline and finding what agencies around you and being able to donate um is fantastic because that's you know some of our curriculums especially for my job um i've gotten for my my, uh, my new job was uh it's out of tennessee it's out of Nashville. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, Washington, D.C., you know, with those, with those nightlives. Cool. Thanks, John. No, Appreciate thanks for it. having me. Appreciate um, it. We'll, you know, we'll touch base uh, text message or something, and um, I look forward to kicking your butt in fantasy football this week. <laughs> yeah, no problem. On behalf of the Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Stay safe. Stay safe.